Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we have reached the letter L. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we explore the creatives and characters from the world of Bond that fall under the letter L, it's the laugh out loud Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. Who, who says I, that? I, I, was, I was giving you that review. <laughs> I was kind of waiting for the... for the. Oh, does it mean you laugh out loud? Me? I'm meant yeah. to. Well, that's that's. Well, it's not going to be people laugh out loud at you, is it? I'll just say. I'm hello. saying he is laugh out loud. He's funny. Oh, is it? I thought he just laughs out loud a lot. Yeah. Well. Anyway. Uh, hello. Yeah. <laughs> and interrupting, it's the larger than life, Mr. Tom Wheatley. That's a, that's an ironic uh, uh, joke. Um, it's cheers. a it's a loose and laid back episode this week, which explores some lamentable Bond villains, some laudable Bond girls, some legitimately legendary creatives. And a loopy vehicle that is a favourite of mine. So let's kick things off. It's the ever loquacious Mr. Tom Wheatley. <laughs> L is for Lamora, Lupe Lamora. So Lupe Lamora is a Bond girl that is probably I wouldn't say she's remembered as like one of the most revered Bond girls in the series, but she's definitely got a place in the in the um, in the Bond film. She appears in License to Kill, uh, and I think she's quite interesting in the fact that unlike a lot of other Bond girls throughout the series, she is. She's got. She's quite dark. Like her existence is quite a dark existence, which fits quite nicely with the license to, to kill, feel of the film. She reminds me quite a bit of Domino in in not just the character but also how she's played, and probably would be what Domino would be like nowadays. And I think a lot of the depictions of her and the treatment by the various um, evildoers in License to Kill is probably it's not it's a bit graphic in in a lot of cases. So she's. She plays the um, sort of girlfriend of uh, Franz Sanchez, girlfriend slash mistress, and very much like Domino, she's sort of mistreated and she's unhappy in the scenario that she's in. Um, he's not very nice to her. Uh, there's a scene earlier on in the film where he catches her in bed with another man and he orders the chap's heart to be cut out and then apparently whips her with a manta ray tail. Yeah. 
I don't remember the Manta Ray tale, but I thought that was quite interesting. So throughout the rest of the film, she is sort of a kept woman. She spends most of her time on the Wave Crest, which is Sanchez's boat, very similar to Domino on the Disco Volante. And she's sort of harassed by not just Sanchez, but also other male characters in there. Milton Crest is not very nice to her and sort of harasses her in, in numerous ways. And then Dalton turns up and he's... So kind of saves her um, and she, she forms an alliance with, her, uh, with with Dalton because she wants to take down Sanchez and his cartel and yeah so uh, she's another interesting point to her and the film itself is that she plays a sort of and this is down to Dalton's character really in the, in the film is that she, she plays a, a secondary love interest for Bond in that as well as her you've got Pam Bouvier as well and there's a really weird scene at the end of License to Kill where he's sort of got to choose between the two Bond women at the end, which he's never seen in a Bond film before. Like, like it's a romantic comedy. Like he's <laughs> he's got to, he's got to make the right choice for the what he wants to end up with, which I always thought was quite strange um, because you know he doesn't really want to end up with either of them. It's just Bond. Uh, so yeah, he um, so yeah he he chooses Pam Bouvier at the end, as you would imagine, which. Um, yeah, it's a strange sequence, really. So, yeah, there's not really too much to say about um, Lupe Lamora. She um, it was played by Talisa Soto. License to Kill is by far her most famous film from um, her filmography. Uh, but she was also a very famous model as well. Uh, and she was in various magazines like Glamour and Elle. And she did loads of ad campaigns for really big brands like Calvin Klein, uh, Cartier, uh, Saks, Fifth Avenue and Versace. So he was, she was picked up in that 80s era where models could become film stars because they were models, basically. Back in those days where we, we've heard about this quite a lot with the Bond series where they just pick female actors because they saw them and said they were attractive and they put them in a film. She's probably quite heavily falls into that realm because she's not a bad uh, actor in it but she's by no means seals the scene in any in any point it's um, kind of the last of that type isn't it in bond because from then you got gone to golden eye and they're casting actors yeah um, she probably well until christmas um, jones um, until christmas jones <laughs> but yeah she's probably one of the straws that broke the camel's back and she doesn't really pam Bube is actually quite good in comparison to her in in terms of you know gender equality and actors and everything she's actually pretty holds her own but yeah so she the other films that she's in she's in she's in quite a few films but i didn't know any other films that she's been in apart from mortal kombat mortal kombat annihilation who's she playing mortal kombat hard sorry who did she play mortal kombat kitana she's like one of the main characters ah yeah um she's not she hasn't got a particularly big role in spy hard she plays a seductress in a hotel room um so yeah other than that She's not really done a lot to sort of talk about, but yeah, I I think she's um she's definitely fits into that Timothy Dalton era of um, Bond women. But for me, not the most memorable. And we'll be talking about her character in the next episode, which will be a License to Kill special. So um, more mm. to cut up. Oh, you can talk to speak about her on that one as well if you like. No, somebody else can do it. <laughs> <laughs> there's not, there's not much else to find out about her. I went through like the the usual routes for finding quotes and stuff, and there's not really like 
there's not really much about her. She's in a lot of the even her own quotes from uh, Nobody Does It Better, which is a good source for quotes for secondary uh, actors in these films. Doesn't really say anything at all in it. There's probably only like three lines, and she only gets mentioned about four times in that whole book. So, yeah, it doesn't there's not a lot covering her. Probably I, I, you've probably read a License to Kill making of, which goes into more detail. Oh yeah, I've got it. I'm going to be diving deep into that one. Four four hundred pages on Talisa Soto's career. Yeah, yeah. I'd ha- be happy to research the Mortal Kombat years. <laughs> on the Mortal Kombat A to Z, come in twenty twenty three. On to an all-timer, all-time great Hall of Famer. L is for Lamont, Peter Lamont. Peter Lamont is the production designer and was one of the world's most renowned, really. He made 18... He was involved in 18 Bond films, nine of those as production designer. In terms of his career, so he left school in 1946 and he got a job at Pinewood and he spent two years there as a, a runner as a print boy. After two years in the RAF, he then returned to Pinewood as a junior draftsman. And in 1964, he was asked by, after sort of fleshing out a bit of a career at Pinewood, he was asked by art director Peter Merton if he wanted to join the art department of Goldfinger as a draftsman. He decided to, to say yes. He said, a friend of mine called me out of the blue and said, would I like to come on Goldfinger? He said, it's a James Bond film. As it happened at that time, For Russian Love had just come out. I can remember getting in line, going to the cinema, and I was absolutely knocked out with the quality of the props that they had, you know, especially that case. And I don't think there will ever, ever be a better fight than the one that Bond had in the railway compartment. So I joined Goldfinger. So on the strength of the scene that we have talked about in many, many episodes of the podcast... Good taste. Received with Red Grant, yeah, good taste. And it also meant that he took the job on Goldfinger. So he took the job and Ken Adam gave him his first task of drawing the exterior of Fort Knox. So that was his first ever role on a Bond film. So as as the years go go on, Peter Lamont, he stays with the Bond family and he, he plies his trade. So for Thunderball, he went on a crash course on scuba diving. Ken Adam said, you better learn to swim underwater. So because the film heavily features a lot of underwater scenes... He was required to spend time at RF Waddington and he studying Vulcan bombers in the in for the preparation of creating a replica. So a lot of sort of homework was put in in these early stages. So much detail and it's shown in the work that he does throughout his career. So he was then promoted from chief draftsman to set decorator uh, and eventually to art director. So on the Man with the Golden Gun, he was art director and. The night before he left for the the island, you know, the island in The Man with the Golden Gun, which is in Thailand. Thailand, yeah. Uh, yeah, the production designer, so Peter Merton, told him to be prepared to stay for some time. He said, I came home seven months later. It was a place that was undeveloped at the time. Believe me, the Bonds have always been the first in these places. I was the one who ran everything. Telephones didn't work. Telexes took three days and a letter. God knows where it went. Seven months. I mean, that's that's crazy. The man isn't with it? the golden gun. <laughs> um, so on that, he actually taught Christopher Lee to how to assemble the golden gun because he he'd came up with it, he designed it, and how it all 
fit together and stuff. So he, he told Christopher Lee how it all worked. So then eventually he becomes Ken Adams' right-hand man for The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977. And then also works with him on Moonraker, 1979. So Ken Adam was unable to do Fiora's Only due to some scheduling. So Peter Lamont was asked to be production designer. And John Glenn said he was reaching a stage in his career where we were either going to promote him to a production designer or he was going to leave the fold and do his own films for someone else because he was that good, you couldn't ignore him anymore. So he, he said himself, Peter Lamont said, after Moonraker and my years as art director on Bond, I graduated to car production designer on Few Eyes Only. And Cubby's edict to me was to go back to basics. That's why we used the Citroen de Chevaux for the big chase, as opposed to a car loaded with gadgets. So he's not really a fan of the cars, cars with gadgets, not his sort of scene so in terms of that position he actually remained that was his his job then production designer moving forward right up until casino royale and the only one he didn't work on was tomorrow never dies the one that has a gadget laden car so in terms of what he created so like i said the man with the golden gun he created the actual gun how it works he created the set for the kremlin war room in octopussy and the ice palace which we talked about in the die another day episode there's also other stuff that you, you don't really, on, on the grand scheme of it, so with Ken Adam, you can see a set like the volcano, you can see it and you, you know that that's been created. But in terms of the on GoldenEye, the tank scene, you just take that for granted. It's that that is, that's been created. But again, that's a Peter Lamont work. So in terms of outside of 007, he worked on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, again, I think we talk about that film in every episode. Uh, also Fiddler on the Roof he won a, an Academy Award for Best Art Direction Set de- Decorations for Titanic in 1998 he, he's worked on a few films with uh, James Cameron so Aliens True Lies, Titanic he died in December 2020 and uh, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli said Peter was a much beloved member of the Bond family and a giant in the industry, inextricably linked with the design and aesthetic of James Bond since Goldfinger he became production designer on Fiora's Only, working on 18 of the 25 films, including nine as production designer. He was a true success story, proving that with talent and hard work, you will achieve your dreams. Our hearts go out to his family and all those who worked with him over many years. He will be very sorely missed. And so as a tribute, Pinewood Studios actually renamed their Eastside Complex, the Peter Lamont Building, in November 2021. I've only brushed over here what, what he's done, because in each episode... We talk about the production and the sets. So we will go into, obviously, the nine of those that he was heavily influenced and the others that he was involved with. But what a career. Absolute legend. Mm. L is for Largo. Emilio Largo, the James Bond villain played by Adolfo Chaley in Thunderball. Uh, He also appeared in Never Say Never Again, uh, which we'll cover at, in more depth at that point. But on to Emilio Largo. He's the Spectre agent number two in Thunderball, who's based in the Bahamas. He's got um, an estate there with a shark-filled pool called Palmyra. And also he's got the hydrofoil boat, the Disco Volante. His Largo is a bit, little bit different to how he's portrayed in the book. In the book, he's, he's dark-haired and um, quite a hairy, swarthy man. 
but um, Chaley was a little bit different. He had obviously got the white hair and he wore the eye patch as well, which was different to how he was shown in the book. And he's quite a memorable looking villain, I think, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Chaley, talking about getting the role, he had said he'd been reading the book of Thunderball and thinking to himself how he would like to be in it. And then a few weeks later, he was called in to audition by Harry Saltzman. Obviously got the job to play Largo. His voice in the film is not... Uh, Chaley's voice he was actually dubbed by an actor called Robert Rietti who uh, we, we had previously heard in James Bond films as the voice of Strangways in Doctor No uh, and he would also later be the voice of Blofeld or whoever the mystery character in For Your Eyes Only and we'll cover Robert Rietti probably when we get to the letter R so talking about uh, Chaley, uh, he was born in July 1922 and he became an actor. He's Italian. Uh, he became an actor after World War II and he emigrated to Brazil where he founded a theatre group and directed a number of films. But his big break in the in the movies came in 1964 uh, when he landed a role in a French film called That Man from Rio, which starred Jean-Paul Belmondo. Um, and that is a James Bond style spy, spy spoof. Um, made by United Artists, or at least the French arm of United Artists. Um, and that film was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Sounds quite good, actually. Have you ever seen it, That Man from Rio? No. Oh. No. I might seek that one out. And then his, his next big thing was with Frank Sinatra. He starred in Frank Sinatra's most successful film, a World War II film called Von Ryan's Express. Again, sounds quite good. But like I said, we will cover... Uh, Largo in, in, in much bigger detail when we get to Thunderball and also uh, again when we get to Never Say Never Again. But after Thunderball, uh, Adolfo Celli, he had many, studied many, many movies, mostly Italian movies, but most famously, or in our sense, he starred in the, or appeared in the 1967 James Bond spoof OK Connery with Sean Connery's brother, Neil Connery. Um and he died in 1986, age 64, after having a heart attack. That's Adolfo Celli. But like I said, we will cover Largo again when we get to Never Say Never Again with Klaus Maria Brandauer in the role. Uh, but we'll talk about him when we get to that point. L is for Lawrence, Mark Lawrence. Now, if you're listening to this, you might not know who Mark Lawrence is from name but if you'd seen his face you would know who he was straight away he actually debatably shouldn't be under L he should actually be under R because he plays two characters in the Bond series and there is some debate as to whether those two characters are the same character so the first time he appears in a Bond film is in Diamonds Are Forever where he plays the gangster that throws Penny O'Toole into the swimming pool out of the window the second time he appears in a Bond film is as the gangster who's in Man with the Golden Gun who's sent to take down Scaramanga but then you find out that really he's just sort of a lamb to the slaughter for Scaramanga to test his skills out on probably like a a, tract, a, a, a factory belt of various sort, um, like gunmen coming in to, for um, Knickknack to test against Scaramanga because I think Scaramanga sort of pays Knickknack to do that, doesn't he? That's his task, to find somebody who can can kill him and that's why he tries to get Roger Moore so in both of those ones in so he's called Rodney in The Man with the Golden Gun and possibly also called Rodney in Diamonds Forever although he isn't actually named aside from that there's not really much about his role in the Bond films he really just plays sort of a generic gangster 
But throughout his life, that was a acting style that basically he was known for. He just played sort of hoodlums and gangsters. He was born in New York. He appeared in a lot of plays and eventually got a film contract with Columbia Pictures um, and started his film career in 1933, where he just started playing gangsters and mob bosses uh, for the rest of his career. There's an interesting point in his career where he admits to being a member of the Communist Party as well. And at the time, he also implicates several co-workers of his um, that are alleged communist sympathisers. So at this point in career, he actually left America to live in Europe, where he continued to make films in Europe, but he wasn't he couldn't couldn't go back to America. Uh, eventually he did return to America and went back to starring in the sort of gangster films that he was he was in um, he's known for various films that he's been in and he, this guy has been in ridiculous amounts of films like there must there must be over a hundred films on his um, IMDB page and uh, I haven't heard of hardly any of them um, but some of the ones that I have heard of he starred with Laurence Olivier in Marathon Man in 1976 and he also appeared alongside Jerry Reed and Dom DeLuise in a comedy called Hot Stuff in 1979 he's also in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called The Vengeance Factor and, is, and he also is in Star Trek Deep Space Nine in, uh, he plays a character called Mr. Zemo uh, in an episode called Bada Bing Bada Bang <laughs> um, which I seem to remember is set in the holodeck and he plays a gangster well he's got the face for it hasn't he let's be honest yeah it's i mean that's what that's generally what he does he's um <laughs> 2003 he's in looney tunes back in action and he appears as acme corporation's vice president and as well as that he also directed a couple of films so he directed a film called nightmare in the sun in 1965 and a film called pigs in 1973 uh only other thing of note uh, about him um is that in 1991 he published his autobiography and it's called long time no see confessions of a hollywood gangster and that is a really hard book to get. It's pretty expensive to to pick up a copy of that on um, on Amazon. I didn't pick up a copy of that, but um, I probably quite an interesting read if you're into people who play gangsters. But yeah, he's a yeah really um, quite an important character. I think if you know his face and you're a Bond fan, instantly you know who he is. And you, I I thought I think he was an excellent character in Man with a Golden Gun. You really set the scene for that whole process of trying to work out who Scaramanga was and and um yeah I think he, he played that really well he's also quite good in Dimes Are Forever in that he's sort of humorous isn't he he's uh adds a comedy element to it where he chucks her in he goes oh, I didn't know there's a pool there yeah um <laughs> is that comedy I thought it was supposed to be menacing <laughs> I think it's comedy in there that, that is a, Dimes Are Forever has a lot of comedy elements in mm. it that yeah it, it tones down the seriousness from the earlier films um, and, and Connery is a bit funnier in it, but I think I think he does play that role quite comedically. I always remember laughing at that line. Um, so there we go. That is Mark Lawrence. L is for Le Chief. Le Chief is played played by Mads Mikkelsen and is the character in Casino Royale. So, in terms of the character, he basically provides financial services for world terrorists. And he receives a large investment uh, from an army in Uganda. And the plan is to destroy a Skyfleet plane. So we've covered the Casino Royale episode where we talk about the plot. But I'll just briefly cover it. So Bond, obviously, he stops that from happening, causing Le Chiffre to lose over $100 million. So in order to win that money back, he arranges a high-stakes poker game at 
the Casino Royale, but is beaten by Bond, and this means he is facing financial ruin. So he kidnaps, he tortures Bond in that famous scene where he's smashing him with the rope, and before Le Chiffre can actually kill Bond, Mr. White comes in and he kills him. So he's a fantastic villain. It's a great performance from Mads Mikkelsen, but he almost didn't get the role. So casting director Debbie McWilliams said, some people aren't cast even after we start shooting. Mads Mikkelsen was not in Casino Royale at all until the person who we originally wanted didn't go. There was an actor very much in mind who I wanted, but in the end, the studio didn't want. You always have to have your eyes open in case you have to replace somebody which has happened many times. I'd been monitoring Mads Mikkelsen for quite a while and had seen him in a few Danish films and was really impressed with his versatility. I'd kept my eye on him, although to my mind he wasn't entirely right for the part because Le Chiffre, by his own name, is meant to be French. But anyway, once our French actor was not going to be cast, we were in Prague and by pure chance, so was Mads Mikkelsen. And so I grabbed him and got him in. That just made me think, I wonder who the French actor was. Hmm. Uh, yeah, they, they, they didn't Depardieu. announce. <laughs> 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 so uh, Mads Mikkelsen himself said, it was confusing. I had a meeting at first, then a casting, and I was all ready to do the torture scene with Daniel. And there was so much going on around us, people running in and out, and then someone said, great, having you on board. And I didn't move. And then they said, go away, I don't want to see you, you've got the job. Daniel was standing next to me, and he said really quietly, all right, tell me your secret, because I went to five castings. Who did you fuck? <laughs> um, so, yeah, one of the easiest auditions he, he's ever had, by all accounts. So, yeah, in terms of terms of himself, uh, Mickelson, he was born in 1965 in Copenhagen in Denmark. And he actually trained as a gymnast and he wanted to go into athletics. But he studied dancing at the Ballet Academy in uh, Gothenburg. Interesting. And then he was a professional dancer for almost a decade until he left it and went on to study drama in Aarhus Theatre School in 1996, which, when you know that, so if you've seen another round, have either of you seen another round? I have, absolutely yeah. terrific. Yeah. So obviously it, it, he dances in that, and and when you piece that together, you go, okay, right, this, it sort of makes sense. So he didn't actually start pursuing acting until he would have been 30 at that, you know, in 1996, and then t- 10 years later he's he's in a, in a Bond film. So he's... Other notable performances, he actually won the Cannes Film Festival Best Actor Award as Lucas in the Danish film The Hunt, which I've not seen. That's terrific. He played Hannibal Lecter in the TV series Hannibal. He played, and I didn't remember this one, he played Caecilius in Doctor Strange. Yes. Caecilius. Caecilius, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I mean... If we're going to start... In what? Doctor Strange? Do- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's the main villain in Doctor Strange. What a waste. Oh, of course they've, he is, yeah. He's got wasted stupid eye, eye tattoos on. I think they wasted him. They really could have... I completely yeah. forgot he was in yeah, Exactly. He, would, he auditioned to play Doctor Doom as well in the uh, crap Fantastic Four. Oh, blimey. I <laughs> Dodged a bullet with that one. Yeah. He also played Galen Erso in Rogue One. Terrific. He's terrific in that. He is yeah. good in that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like I mentioned, he got nominated for a BAFTA for his performance in Another Round, which is an excellent film. Uh, and it, it won the Academy Award for Best International Film, didn't it, in 2020? 
Yeah. And then moving forward, he in November 2020, it was confirmed that he would be taken over from Johnny Depp as Grindelwald in Fantastic Beasts, The Secret of Secrets of Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. And then in April 2021, it was announced that he would had joined the cast of Indiana Jones 5. So his career is going slightly down a different path. <laughs> but I'm glad that he's still doing those sort of independent films as well, because I think he's he's fantastic. And he's one of those actors where you can't, take your eyes off the screen when he's when he's on i think no there's like um there's like i don't know like a tortured like vulnerability about him i think we talked about this Mm. on the like the uh, casino royale episode but he really brings like a sort of brittle energy Mm -hmm. to everything that he's in you know he's always seems to be like a man on the edge yeah Um, absolutely he just looks absolutely amazing Um, did you mention what's that one with tom holland in (laughs) Uh, the new film, newish film, uh, and uh, the actor, the lady from uh, Star Wars. Come on, Wheatley. Come on, what are you uh, doing? It's awful. It's an awful film. I can't remember what it's called now. He's in it anyway. Right, I've got to edit that out, haven't I? Well done. <laughs> no, leave it in. That's, that's plenty of information. Tom Holland has in Spider-Man, Tom Holland. Yeah, he's in a film with Tom Holland, yeah. Daisy Ridley. Oh, Chaos Walking! Yes, that's it. Yes, that is uh, that's a, that's a film that went horribly wrong, I think, behind the scenes. Mm. But um, that's Mad Mickelson as Le Chiffre. And you're not going to mention um, who was it in the? It was Orson Welles, wasn't it, in '67 um, Casino Royale? No, no, <laughs> just gonna <laughs> just leave him there. Absolutely not. No, I'm not going into that because it's it's. He wasn't even there, was he? It was no. uh, shot separately. It's, no. See, see the Casino Royale episode. Yeah. Right. L is for Lippy, Count Lippy, played by Guy Dolman in Thunderball. Uh, he's a Spectre agent. He's probably more memorable for having a, a funny name than much of a, a role in the film. But to recap, Bond encounters Lippy at Shrublands. And he spots him at Shrublands because he's got a Chinese symbol tattoo, which marks him out as being a bad guy. Count Lippy tries to kill James Bond in the traction machine. Uh, you obviously a very quite famous scene. And then Bond retaliates by trapping him in a steam bath. It's a nice little um, back and forth that they have at Shrublands, I think. And then later on, as they leave Shrublands, Count Lippy gets killed by Fiona Volpe in the car chase with the DB5. He's chasing Bond and then she blows him up with her motorbike. So uh, that's about it, really, for Count Lippy. But Guy Dolman was born in 1922 and he was born in New Zealand. He's from New Zealand. Uh, He lived in Australia and he had a very successful acting career uh, down under. When he moved to London in the 1960s to get more work and he obviously then landed the role in Thunderball. He also appeared in Harry Saltzman's Len Dayton, Harry Palmer films. So the one starring Michael Caine as Colonel Ross. And those three films were released in 1965 to 1967. And you'll like this one, Wheatley. He played number two in the TV series The Prisoner. Mm. He played, uh, he was the first of a pair of number twos who appeared in the first episode. The second being played by Bond alumni George Baker. Interesting. So yeah, so Guy Dolman later, after the sort of success of the sixties, returned to Australia, and in the end, he, he died in LA in nineteen ninety six, aged seventy two. Count Lippy. Mm. 
L is for Logan, John Logan. John Logan is a American writer, screenwriter and TV producer uh, who is famous in the Bond world for writing scripts uh, to different degrees for Skyfall and Spectre. So Logan was, as I say, for different degrees because he had quite a big part to play in Skyfall. He actually did a major rewrite on Skyfall. And the reason being that he needed to focus more on the characterization and the dialogue of the script as opposed to the sort of action orientated that it pro- was probably focused on before. Famously, he's responsible for the for Silver's rat monologue which you'll probably both remember as being a, a standout scene from uh, oh, yeah. from Silver. In Skyfall, uh, he actually left the writing of, of that script. He wrote some early scripting for that and then um, didn't finish it. So yeah, it has less of a part to play in the, the writing of Spectre. He left the uh, writing team on, on Spectre, so he wasn't the final writer on that. He's quite famous for his, more so than his film work, probably is his um, theatre work which is one of the reasons why he was um, brought in to get involved with the Bond films at this point because of his focus on how he actually writes um, for plays. He said about um, writing for the Bond films, when you look over the vast panoply of Bond films, things tend to emerge like a lightning bolt, great moments of character interaction, whether it's Bond and Goldfinger, Bond and Blofeld or Bond and Vesper Lind. Those are the amazing scenes that just stop your heart because they're unexpected in what's considered a genre movie. And he talks a little bit as well. Well, John, um, so he says uh, writing action sequences is was a really big challenge for him and he, a, a joy of being a screenwriter on those films for him because part of the, the task there was making... You can write action sequences, but to, you had to make them Bondian as possible. So um, there's a certain level of skill required to sort of turn these action sequences into impressive Bond-style ones, um, which is something that marks a good writer on Bond films, isn't it? The ability to, to do an action sequence, which isn't necessarily the hardest thing in the world, and then turning it into a well-written um, Bond storyline as well. It was apparently Logan's idea to reintroduce Spectre, in um in the film Spectre, so the first time that we would have seen Spectre in forty four years, but the the first draft that he did uh for Spectre wasn't very well received by Eon and Sony. So when he left, he was taken over by uh, Jez Butterworth, who um carried on the script. He is famous for loads of films actually. Um, so he was screenwriter for Gladiator, mm. uh, The Aviator, Hugo. Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. He has been nominated for three Academy Awards, uh, Best Screenplay for Gladiator and The Aviator and Best Adapter Screenplay for Hugo. Have you seen Hugo? That's the Martin Scorsese one. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he also a uh, two-time Tony Award nominee for his play uh, called Red in 2010 uh, and Best Book of a Musical for Moulin Rouge. Uh, in 2021 uh, he's also nominated for a primetime Emmy Award uh, for outstanding writing for a limited series or movie for RKO 281 he is from Chicago and I've mentioned his play there Red uh, which was a pretty big deal for him it's about an artist called Mark Rothko who's like a, an abstract painter a Latvian Jewish painter and he received uh, six Tony Awards the most of any play for that and it went from London to Broadway and starred Eddie Redmayne 
and Alfred Molina, who followed the cast from London and Broadway. So a pretty big deal and obviously some big stars in that one that decided to stick with it from um, the London to uh, Broadway showings of it. He also, his other films he's done include Star Trek Nemesis, The Time Machine, The Last Samurai and Rango. I'm guessing you both know Rango. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, I but we all know because he's got kids. I don't think I've actually seen Rango. It's it's better than you better than you expect. But I, yeah. I, I haven't watched it with the kids. It's it's. Well, I think I watched it on a plane once because I watched it on a plane. Yeah, yeah, I watched it on a plane. Mm. Is it a DreamWorks one? Sort of a. Yeah, hasn't it? Doesn't Roger Deakins do the cinematography on it? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think. Oh, he was he was definitely a, he was a lighting consultant, wasn't he on it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know much about Rango, to be honest. Um, He did the film adaptation of Shakespeare's Coriolanus, uh, which had Ralph Fiennes in it. And yeah, did lots of other plays as well. And one of the big things that he's known for is Penny Dreadful. So he created the Penny Dreadful TV series, which um, obviously starred Timothy Dalton. Uh, He he also wrote Alien Covenant. And Rory Kinnear and Eva Green. There you go. And Sam Mendes involved. And Sam Mendes was involved. Yeah, yeah. Was it? Well, there you go. I didn't do much research. He's depended dreadfully either. Um, <laughs> but why would I? So, yeah, so he also wrote Alien Covenant. Apparently he's writing or was writing Alien Covenant 2. And apparently uh, somebody, uh, it's been said that he was work- he's working on a Michael Jackson biopic. I don't know how true that is. Um, so, yeah, so... He, I, I think there's another series of Penny Dreadful, like a spin-off that he's working on as well. I think that's been and gone, actually. Has it? Yeah, I think it, I think it, I think it came out and did, they did one series. It got cancelled. It had um, Natalie Dormer in it, I think. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna research every one of these shows. <laughs> Just don't mention it next time. The, the stuff that I'm, the stuff that I, I don't think many people have been updating articles. Been that bothered about these, uh, these shows because, uh, yeah, they've not, I've not, I've not got the updates on them. Um, so yeah, there we go. That is. John Logan. A brief summary. Brief summary of John Logan. Very brief and incorrect, probably. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Some vague rumours about John Logan. There you go. <laughs> oh, boy. L is for Locke. Emile Leopold Locke. And he is played by Michael Gotard, and he's a character from For Your Eyes Only. He is the the guy that commits murders for Christatos. We talked about we talked about him in For Your Eyes Only. So again, just just gonna briefly touch on on the character and the actor. So in terms of the plot, he pays Gonzalez in Spain to for assassinating the Havelocks, and then when Molina kills Gonzalez. Locke takes back the cash and Locke aids Christatos in convincing Bond that Milos Colombo murdered the Havelocks. So then Locke kills Luigi Ferreira and in the later he runs over Countess von, Sch- von Schlaff as well. I need to get my teeth oh, in for Liesel. that. <laughs> Liesel von Schlaff, yeah. So then Locke uh, ends up facing Bond in Albania. And this is where they get the iconic scene where Bond, uh, Bond shoots him and he kicks him and his car off of the cliff in one of Roger Moore's most brutal moments as Bond. And John Glenn says, I cast Michael Gotard in Few Eyes Only and he 
contributed many ideas of this, my first effort as a Bond director. He suggested the distinctive octagonal eyeglasses, which gave him a sinister look. Um, so the the actor himself said it's quite a challenge to try and make an impact with a character as restrained and quiet as Locke I had to act in a sort of straitjacket but I certainly did my best to make him into a menacing and evil presence audiences usually remember the Bond villains and their henchmen so I'm hoping I won't be an exception well it, it, it's just good that he had those octagonal glasses <laughs> because that was the one thing that they, they the one bit of information they had about the man so if anyone else was wearing them they'd be stumped <laughs> Yeah, it's a huge, huge plot point, isn't it? Do you, you know, if he if, if he, he had- took an, if he taken off his glasses, they would never have finished that film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'd still be at that machine trying to put it in. Yeah, uh, rounder, cute, rounder, <laughs> smaller nose. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the actor Michael Gotard was born in 1939. He's an English actor. And his his biggest role was was the one we've discussed. Really, he's been in a number of British TV shows. Minder, on for you weekly. Now we're cooking yeah. on gas. Who- now, now now the podcast is, is is working. Let's do it. Also, Ivanhoe. Imagine that's oh, something. Yeah. yeah, the professionals, Randall and Hopkirk, usually playing the villains. And one of his last main appearances was actually in uh, the 1992 film Christopher Columbus: The Discovery, the uh, the the film that we chatted about that uh, it was a massive flop, directed by John Glenn. John Glenn, yeah, yeah. Sadly, he struggled de- with depression for much of his life, and he committed suicide in 1992 at the age of 53. But yeah, that's so. Locke, what are your thoughts on Locke? He, I like Locke. He had a good, uh, a good scene. The, kid, the scene in the car is great. I'm surprised when, a, when you said he was English. I always assumed he was like some international actor. But ah, there you go. Well, he made a career for himself by sort of doing that. Doing uh, his roles. I think he's a very smooth, menacing baddie. I like the sort of quiet, calm, cool, sort of Red Grantish, but nowhere near as good. <laughs> <laughs> and those glasses do a lot of the heavy lifting. I think. Oh, the glasses. You put that on anyone and they're going to be menacing. <laughs> oh, dear. So there we go. Lock. L is for Lotus. Lotus Esprit. So Lotus Esprit is the James Bond car that appeared in 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me, um, referred to in that film also as Wet Nelly. The Lotus Esprit also returned uh, in For Your Eyes Only, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what do you guys is it think? Is called Wittinelli well, in the film? No, I don't know if it's referred to in the film, but there is... I, I think, think it was just like f- f- um, people just referred to it as Wittinelli just as like a callback. I don't I, I, thought yeah. it, I don't think it was ever officially called that. And Well, in researching gear, I think it, I, I, it possibly appears on some of Q's documents for the, for the car. But yeah, what do you guys think of uh, the Lotus Esprit and the Spy Love Me? beautiful absolutely fantastic I- iconic and and also the the moment when it turns into you know a, being water a water-based vehicle yeah it's Jaw a dropping. sublime moment isn't it mm. yeah it really is yeah. a sublime moment it's very um it's Pete roger moore yeah and when but you look- oh, we always talk about the lotus coming back like the aston martin does but it just couldn't could it because it's so like the aston martin it it looks cool it's it, it's conspicuous, but in a good way because people can drive it. If if you ever drove around in a Lotus, a Spree, 
instantly everyone's gonna be like, "What? Who's that? What's going on there?" That, I've never, I've never seen one of them. It's like, yeah. completely useless. And I think unless the... he, yeah, unless he went to like a an event and they were showing it and they got into it and drove it around. But that would be a pretty lazy callback, I think. Yeah, and I think unfortunately the difference between the Aston Martin and the and the Lotus Esprit is that the Aston Martins are built to last. They are high performance premium cars, whereas the Lotus is a bit a bit more of a budget car. I mean, and they weren't cheap, but like. They're, they're not as prestigious or as long-running as, as the Aston Martin. And so where Aston Martin can maintain these things, I don't think the Lotus were built to last as long, I'm afraid. But yeah, I, 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 when you ever see like a book about the James Bond cars, it's always the Aston Martin and the and, and the Lotus Esprit, the, the, the white one, because it's just so distinctive and so memorable. And I think they've never really... They haven't had a, a, a gadget car since then that's managed to live up to that one, really, have they? Um, that's why they keep bringing the Aston Martin back, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they need to they need to try something new out, don't they? There's just no cool cars that because cool cars nowadays tend to be like, you know, the sports cars like Fast and Furious cars, not classic cars. And they can't really bring a classic car into it now because it's going to be battling with the Aston Martin. Yeah, I'm sure they'll move into electric cars soon, won't they? Um, smart car, a smart car. <laughs> anyway. Talking about electric, we'll get to electric cars as well because there there is a link. But the Lotus Esprit, um, the car itself, was designed by an Italian designer called Giorgetto Gigaro, or Gigaro, and he's considered to be one of the greatest car designers ever. Uh, he's designed over two hundred different cars, including the Volkswagen Golf, the Seat Ibiza, the Fiat Panda, the Fiat Uno. He's designed cars for Alfa Romeo, Aston Martin. He, in fact, he was involved with the design of the Aston Martin DB4. He's designed cars for BMW, Bugatti, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Maserati. Basically, you name it, he's designed a car for it. But most we've covered him before, haven't we? When we did the Aston Martin episode, uh, maybe no. I think we talked about the people because the DB5 is is done by different designers, and we talked mm-hmm. about the, the the design house that did it. Um, we have to refer back to that as it's such a long time ago now. But famously, he also worked on the DeLorean, um, the car made famous by Back to the Future. And so in the early 1970s, he was sort of one of the pioneers in the car design industry of moving away from the curved shaped of cars into a more wedge shaped type car. And so he was hired by Colin Chapman of Lotus to work on a new model for for, for the British car company. The uh, designer, um, Giorgetta, he took a concept that he'd designed for Maserati called the Maserati Boomerang. And that's what he based the new design for Lotus on. If you look at the Maserati Boomerang and look at the Lotus Esprit, they're basically the same car. But he worked on that and the Lotus Esprit was launched at the Paris Motor Show in 1975 and entered production in 1976. So then we go on to The Spy Who Loved Me. Obviously, that film was made in 1976 and released in 1977. So... How it ended up in the film was there was a guy, a Lotus PR guy called Donovan McLaughlin, and he had recently done some work at Pinewood Studios, having supplied a car called the Lotus Europa to a film called Eleven Harrow House, which is this crime film. Someone at Pinewood tipped him off about uh, Bond uh, 77, the, uh, the the film that would be The Spy Who Loved Me going into production. And so... Donovan, um, what he did on his own initiative, he borrowed a Lotus Esprit prototype and drove it to from Lotus's Norfolk HQ to Pinewood. And this is a quote from um, Donovan McLaughlin. He said, 
I, I parked it early in the morning outside the main door of Pinewood where all the directors and bigwigs have to go into their office. Everyone had to walk around it to get into the building. Then I moved it during the day to several other blocks. There were three or four people gathered around it when I returned. So I said, excuse me, excuse me, please, and got in and drove off. So his stunt paid off, basically. He'd caught the attention of, of the people at Pinewood, including the guys at Eon. And he was approached by Derek Meddins, who was doing the visual effects on the film. And that then led to a meeting with Cubby Broccoli, the producer, director Lewis Gilbert, and the director of photography, Claude Renoir, and Peter Lamont. So Cubby explained to uh, McLaughlin what they were planning for uh, The Spy Who Loved Me and said, do you want the Lotus Esprit to be the car that we do it with? And obviously they were very keen to make that happen. Uh, the decision was made sort of there and then by the d director of photography, Claude Renoir, that the cards should be in white so that it would be would show up better on camera in the scenes in Sardinia. And they did the deal there and then on a handshake. So Lo Lotus, they supplied two cars, seven body shells and spare parts. And according to the book uh, Bond Cars, which came out last year, the deal would have been worth in today's money about £105,000. So not a huge amount of money uh, outlay for, for Lotus to get involved, really. When you consider the Aston Martins nowadays cost a million pounds like per car to put in the in the, in the movie. So um, quite a good deal. So McLaughlin drove the Lotus Esprit to Paris for the press launch of the film. And while he was on the way to the press launch for the film, he got pulled over by the police because he was driving with illegal 007 plates on. They were sort of fake plates. So he ended up getting a police escort to the press launch and that really impressed Cubby, um, who then turned it into a press, you know, uh, stunt, you know, bond pulled over by, by police. So then when they took the cars to uh, shoot in Sardinia, um, Lotus had to supply a driver, a guy called Roger Becker, because the stunt drivers on the film, they couldn't get the Lotus to do what they wanted it to do in terms of the skids and the the handling all that sort of stuff roger becker basically jumped in showed that he could do it and they hired him there on the spot the car itself was said to be quite temperamental on set and because it was so low to the ground roger moore said it made elegant exits from the car an issue <laughs> which you can imagine so obviously you see the car in action and then it goes underwater so Ken Adam was involved in designing the submersible version of the vehicle, which they built for real, life-size, by a Florida company called Perry Oceanographic, Ocean Graphics. And a guy, a, Navy, a former Navy SEAL called Don Griffin, was hired to drive the car underwater, and he would wear full scuba gear to do it. So when you watch it in the film... There is really a life-size underwater car. It's full of water, but like it works and it can go up and down, backwards and forwards. It was quite difficult to con control by all accounts, but they got it working. There were also scale models of it, uh, which you can see in places as well in the scene. Um, and they shot the wet Nelly stuff, the underwater stuff in the Bahamas due to the, the, the really cl clear blue water out there. So when the car emerges from the sea, they had to winch it out using cables. Um, and you'll see that famous scene where it pulls out and the, everyone's looking at the car and Roger Moore winds down the window and drops out of the fish. It's uh, quite a funny, funny moment, quite a memorable moment. Um, and then after the film had wrapped on production, the submarine car went on a promotional tour uh, around America. And then eventually, after being on tour, it went into a storage unit 
and this is where the story gets a little bit un- uh, interesting. So the, it went into this storage unit where it basically got forgotten and it was locked up in this um, storage unit for years and years and years and years. And then one day when the unit was not being paid for anymore, it literally went to a, a storage auction, you know, like you see in those TV programs. And someone paid $100 for this storage unit, not knowing what was inside it, opened it up and there was Wet Nelly. And so he didn't really know what it was or how famous this car was. And when he was transporting it across country, he was uh, on on a flatbed truck. He was tuned into the CB radio. And every time like he would go past other truckers, they were like, it's the James Bond car. It's the James Bond car. And he really knew that he had something quite special. Um, so he sort of did a bit of re- restoration work on it. it. Then it went on display and then it later went to auction. And I'll come on to that in a second. So, like I said, the Lotus Esprit returns in for your eyes only. It's a different model slightly this time. It's a Lotus Turbo Esprit. And the white version gets blown up at the start of the film. If you remember, it's got like a, uh, a burglar safety device on it. And when he pulls the handle, it blows the car up. And the idea was that they were take stripping Bond of his gadgets. So he couldn't rely heavily on gadgets. And it's for only, you know, it's the one that brought Bond back down to earth. And then uh, it returned a bit later on um, when Bond drives it to Cortina D'Ampezzo. And it's a copper coloured version with the skis on the roof. And it was painted a darker colour to make it stand out against the snow. So where the other one had been white to stand out against the countryside, this one was copper to stand out against the snow. So talking about the original car, so in 2013, the guy behind Tesla, Elon Musk, bought the submarine car, uh, the prop car, at auction for $997,000. He said, it was amazing as a little kid in South Africa to watch James Bond in The Spy Who Loved Me drive his Lotus Esprit off a pier, press a button and have it transform into a submarine underwater. I was disappointed to learn that it can't actually transform. What I'm going to do is upgrade it with a Tesla electric powertrain and try to make it transform for real. So there you go. That's where Wet Nelly ended up. Um, And then just a footnote in the story of the Lotus Esprit. In 2012, for Bond's uh, 50th anniversary, Top Gear did a, a stunt where they recreated the car that would really go underwater and Richard Hammond drove it underwater. So um, yeah, you can watch that. I don't think it's the Lotus Esprit. I think it's a slightly different model of Lotus. But yeah, there you go. One of my favourites, probably my favourite James Bond car, I think. So from one of your favourite James Bond cars to one of your favourite James Bond women, uh, L is for Lind, Vesper Lind. Now, Vesper Lind is... Probably out of the whole of the film series of Bond, she is one of the, if not the most important female character, especially in latter years, but also because her character is so intrinsically linked to the book as well. So there's very few Bond characters, especially the female characters, that are actually follow the story very closely to the original book that they came from. Vesper Lind is obviously the main love interest in Casino Royale, both the film and the book, but also her part in the Bond story reverberates across the whole of the Daniel Craig era. So she's an incredibly important character, which I think gets mentioned in every single one of the Daniel Craig films in some form or other. In the film um, Casino Royale, uh, actually, before I do that, she's also in the 1967 Casino Royale film played by Ursula Andress. I'm going to forget that later, so I'm just going to throw that in. Uh, Less said about that, the better. But her character in that is not very similar to the actual character in the book and the film. In Casino Royale, 
the movie with Daniel Craig. Uh, she plays an, an agent that works for the government and she's basically pulled in to assist Bond in his attempts to disgrace the chief. So she comes along and she's basically meant to bankroll Daniel Craig's Bond to make sure that he's got the money he needs to win the game uh, poker, but also to make sure that he doesn't lose it. So she she comes along with him for that, has a fairly innocuous role to play in the initial parts of that film. But as the story unfolds, we actually find that it's a little bit more com- complicated than that. Um, and by the end of Casino Royale, uh, there's a, a big story around the fact that she's actually a double agent and she's she's been tricking Bond uh, throughout um, I'd probably say the fulcrum of the Casino Royale s- story is when they're in the the shower, which is the point where she is almost she plays a, has a part to play in the deaths of some of the baddies in that film, and she feels guilt for it and doesn't really know how to react. So Bond and her sit in the shower, and he starts doing that weird thing where he starts sucking her fingers, uh, even though he's not known her very long. Um, <laughs> Um, but by the end of so by the end of that film, he's basically uh, finds out that she's double crossed him. They well before then actually they sort of fall in love and they go on holiday um, to Venice. And at that point, Vesper steals. I think she steals the winnings off of him. The the money he's got from it. The the yeah yeah. Uh, and then he finds out and he, he he ends up sort of hating her and then he ends up going to save her and then she kills herself because of what she's done. Um, and at the end of the film, she dies and it finishes with the, the line, the bitch is dead. Now, the the book follows that quite closely in theme. So the theme of the, their relationship is quite similar across the book and the film, but the actual part parts that they play in that are slightly different. So in the book, she is personal assistant to the head of section S at MI6. Um, and she uh, is also working with Smirsh um, as part of the plot. So slightly different story behind that. So she's a double agent, basically working for the Russian ministry of internal affairs. But really the whole, the whole principle of the story is pretty, pretty much the same throughout. So as I said, uh, throughout the rest of the Craig stories, she is mentioned a great deal and uh, is a callback. There's many, many callbacks throughout those those films. But there's also a callback in her Majesty Secret Service in the book where she goes. He, uh, Bond goes to visit her grave. He does an annual pil- pilgrimage to her grave, which we then see later on in No Time to Die. So yeah, so that's that's Vesper Lind. Massive, massive character plays an important part, and up all the way up until No Time to Die, she's still like the main, like the main character, and in many ways. Bond's true love throughout that whole series, even by the end of No Time to Die. Um, she is also mentioned in in, two, in Quantum of Solace. I get confused about her role in Quantum of Solace, but Bond finds out that she was sort of tricked into doing it. Yeah, her boyfriend was blackmailing her. Yeah, but the, there's a there's a bit of a twisty plot around the the boyfriend's called Caballero. It's like the very and, final scene, isn't it? Yeah, he's called Caballero, but you find out that she he was blackmailing her, but also he was being blackmailed as well to to do, to like seduce these high-ranking women in intelligence agencies. Um, so it's a bit of a twisty plot, and then Bond basically forgives her. Um, and there's one final bit in uh, Spectre where Bond finds a VHS tape in Mister White's hotel room, which is Vesperlin's interrogation, um, and also Blofeld says that he was the cause of her death, which obviously makes 
Daniel Craig's Bond, a bit annoyed. Um, so that is Vesper Lind, a uh, massive character throughout that Craig series, um, played by Eva Green. Uh, and Eva Green is um, pretty damn famous, um, probably one of the most sex- successful of the Bond women um, ever to exist. She's sort of, she's never fallen into the trap of being a Bond Bond girl and then not coming out of it as so many actors have done um her career has been pretty impressive um she started off as a bit of a stage actor and then eventually moved into films she's um uh, she's french so there's a there's a few french films that she's been in which i've never heard of um but films that she has been in that i have heard of and they're all quite big kingdom of heaven which was just before casino royale uh golden compass dark shadows don't think i've ever seen dark shadows 300 rise of an empire uh, sin city a dame to kill for Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, uh, Dumbo, Proxima, uh, and she was also, as we've mentioned earlier, in Penny Dreadful, uh, the, uh, just been in The Luminaires, uh, and I think she's meant to be starring in an Apple TV s- uh, series coming up soon. Liaison, co-starring Vincent Cassell. So yeah, that's uh, Eva Green, big, big uh, actor for the Bond series, and um, I'm, I'm reliably informed one of your favourites, Butler. Who says that? You've said that before. You've said she's fantastic. Well, she is fantastic, yeah. I've met her before, actually. I've interviewed her. She's, she, oh, she was here lovely. we go. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. For Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. D- dreadful movie. You neglected to mention that her, her tomb gets blown up in No Time to Die. So there's a chance that she's now just a shredded mess. Well, she was dead anyway. So I mean, I'm she was dead anyway, sure. but yeah. <laughs> wasn't that a sad thing to happen, was it? But uh, yes, uh, tombed up, but it gets blown up. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I wonder how she ended up in Italy, or why she... Is she not supposed to be British? Yeah, she is British, yeah. yeah. Is she British in it? Yes. She is, Who yeah, knows? because they had doubts over casting Eva Green, but she went away and she learnt the British accent. Mm. It's a bit inter- yeah, I have absolutely no idea why she's in Italy. Yeah, interesting that she's French. I can never sort of detect any French accent on anything she does. But um, I, I think I have. I'm, I'm sure I've seen her in something where she's a bit French. Mm. Mm. Well, that's it then. I guess that wraps things up for the letter L. Thank you so much for listening. If you have listened to this episode, um, please uh, leave us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, enemies. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with the show to let us know um, if you have any questions or if you have any feedback, then uh, you can email us on podcast at jamesbond Or you can find us on social media at jamesbond z on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. That uh, just leaves me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Cheers, people. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Good morning, Major Boothroyd. Morning, Major. Look what Q's brought for us. Isn't it nice? Right. Now, pay attention, 007. I want you to take great care of this equipment. There are one or two rather special accessories. Q, have I ever let you down? Frequently.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.